Lectionary Lab Live is recorded live in Gainesville, Florida and Brasstown, North Carolina. Welcome, everybody, to the Lectionary Lab Live. I'm John Fairless. I'm here with my Bubba, Delmer Chilton. Say hey, Bubba. Hey, Bubba. Hey, man. Good to hear you today and uh, get up with you to talk some text. I'm going to tell you it is hot. It's probably hot everywhere folks are listening to us. But uh, I'm glad to be here in the air-conditioned studios of the Lectionary Lab. (laughs) Posh. Uh, as they are, yes. <laughs> my back room and your borrowed office. And, my my uh, youth room at the Episcopal Church. <laughs> Glad to be here. We're going to talk text today for the seventh Sunday after Pentecost in year A. These are the texts for July 16th, 2023. Uh, Continuing the good stuff with uh, Genesis, with some Romans, and of course the gospel and supporting text. Bubba, I'm always eager to hear what you got to say. Tell us what you got on your mind today. Well, um, the summary for today, the theme or the thing that the interpretive lens that leapt out at me after I read all the texts for the day, you know, mm-hmm. we we end up with six or seven now uh, through this period, and we're looking at all of them a little bit. Uh, it, it suddenly dawned on me that what all of them are talking about at one level or another is an assurance of God's faithfulness. Uh, your old buddy Liston Mills question, mm-hmm. can God be trusted? And in various ways, all of these texts are saying, yes, God can be trusted. Yeah. We can have assurance that God is with us and active in us in whatever situation we find, because the vari- variables in these stories are the situations people are in, which is um, a hint to us that God is present in all kinds of ways. Um, Genesis, we got uh, what I'm going to talk about as domestic dysfunction, <laughs> and yeah. God has a word of assurance there, an interesting mm-hmm. word, but God is present in it. Uh, Isaiah, they're at the end of the exile, and there's this promise that God will be with them in the right. return, the chaos of return. Mm-hmm. That's one of those those things that um, uh, you might get comfortable in a new situation, you know. Yeah. And, and now the exile's about to end, he promises, and we're going to return, and mm-hmm. it's going to be kind of chaotic, and, and God's going to be with us. Um, yeah. Romans. And things and things aren't going to be like they used to be when you get back no. home. That's no. another part of that. Yeah, Thing, mm-hmm. things are going to be different, but God's going to be there. Uh, Romans, it's uh, kind of the same ethical, religious struggle. It's a more positive take on it. We'll talk about, but it's still mm-hmm. that flesh and spirit, that struggle of how do I fulfill? You know, last week's was about, mm-hmm. you know, I think one way and I do another. This one's about the struggles of what he calls the flesh. And that's, as C.S. Lewis once said, every time the Bible says flesh, the modern Western human being thinks yeah. sex. And that's not what he's talking about, exactly, <laughs> you know, part yeah. of it, but not it. It's the struggle with our humanity and how do we, how do we live out mm-hmm. our faith? Mm-hmm. And Matthew, and I'm going to talk about this, I think this text is really about 
struggling with success or failure in our efforts in working for God, mm-hmm. and how do we live with those? What do we do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we how do we cope with us? And the issue is God is with us, and it's okay. Now, the secondary issue in all these texts to think about. Mm-hmm is so the text assure us that God is with us. How do we know that? How do we get that message? Um, you know, and I'm, you know, today we're talking all about biblical text, but we look inside the text and see the people who aren't reading text, they're living life. And so how do they know? Um, there's prayer. I mean, you've got um, um, Rebecca's prayer. And, and dialogue with God. There's the promise that people hold on to. Um, you've got um, Isaac holding on to the Abrahamic promise, you know, mm-hmm. to Jacob and Esau. That's there. There's proclamation. You know, you've got Jesus preaching. You've got Isaiah proclaiming. And you have in the Psalms and other places the, the language about provision, the God of creation. We can look around us in the natural world and get some message mm-hmm. that God is there for us. Notice my P's. Prayer, promise, proclamation, and provision. Yeah. Thought I'd make I, that I, obvious. I was just letting that roll. I'm like, oh yeah, here it comes. Let it, yeah, come on, Bubba. And then mm-hmm. it's all, all of it is various ways of revelation. Got a little mm-hmm. more, little more alliteration here because we find it in the Word, we find it in the world, and we find it in waiting upon God. Mm-hmm. So. Any of y'all that uh, still need to book a revival speaker for this fall, <laughs> call Brother Delmer; he'll be ready. <laughs> there you go. So let's talk Genesis, let's do it. Isaiah, then Romans, and and Matthew. So yep. here we go. Genesis 25, 19 through 34. We're in the midst of the patriarchal stories. It's interesting. You got Abraham and Sarah, and you got a lot of stories about them. Yep. Then you got Isaac and Rebecca, and they get kind of shortchanged. Isaac Zoom. just sort of blips on the scene. Uh, so Isaac <laughs> plays in these stories, is involved in these stories, but there's no real personality there. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's. He's almost sacrificed. <laughs> we, we don't get to know him like we do the other. The, yeah. the serpent servant goes and recruits his wife. You got more about mm-hmm. his servant than about him. And then in this one, Rebecca has more time on the stage, and then his children do. Isaac's yeah. just kind of there. Then you've got Jacob and ultimately Jacob, Leah and Rachel and Joseph and all that. So this is where we are. We're mm-hmm. in the midst of all of that story. It's just to place ourselves. And this story is interesting in that it's um, a lot of it comes out of the priestly writer kind of structure the chronology and making things, and it also does some what you see occasionally. It's it's some humor and ridicule because they're saying that the Edomites, who are neighbors of the Israelites, are descendants of Esau, right? And Edom means red, so you've got this whole business of uh, Esau coming out red and hairy, so he was called Esau, you know, it's a play on the Edomites, which are supposedly his descendants. And and there's part of that there is some of that um, uh, interpretive years later kind of look at things, Mm -hmm. and one interesting couple of things to note as the way the story is told. 
As you talk about these patriarchal stories and going further back, it's interesting, and just play with it. I don't have a major interpretation to make of it. How many times when you have brothers, you have brotherly rivalries? Almost all the time. All the time. Cain and Abel? You got Isaac and Isaac and and Ishmael, another one. Yeah. Uh, here we got Esau and Jacob, and of course you got Joseph and his brothers. Mm-hmm. What's another thing that's interesting is the losers, as it were, the ones who aren't a part of the the, uh, the you know the losers, are the hunters, the bad guys, mm-hmm. as it were, are the hunters. The outdoorsman, you know, Ishmael became a great hunter in his own country, but then you've got Esau, the the mm-hmm. hunter and the game person. And the winners, if you want to call them that, tend to be the shepherds and uh, the farmers and the people close to home. I just don't know exactly what to make of that until mm-hmm. you got these people going on. But it's worth thinking about <laughs> as to who wrote the story. The, the, yeah. the stories get written by the descendants of those from the point that that side yeah, yeah. that's true well and and <laughs> interesting little line again i i don't think there's anything to make about it other than to notice yeah. it uh you know he saw the skillful hunter the man of the field jacob was a quiet man yeah living in tents and well, we find out the next verse mama's boy yeah uh, well that's so, yeah, there's some uh, typecasting, a little. Yeah. yeah, we don't know what's going on here, yeah. but it yeah, lets us know casting. these are real people. Yeah. Well, then there's, and that, as you say, there's this family dysfunction going on. First of all, they get married, and then, where have we heard this story before? <laughs> Rebecca was barren. How many mm-hmm. times? Sarah, then this, and then Samuel's mother, Hannah, you know, and just, you've got this over and over, this barrenness and this miraculous birth. And um, she went and, you know, there was this prayer, and then she gets pregnant, and then, but there are discomfort in the womb. They're fighting, and she goes and prays, and God says, and this is another one of those pieces about the Edomites, says, well, you got two warring against each other within your womb, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, two nations will be battling one another, et cetera. So you got all this dysfunction going on before they're even born. <laughs> And then there, there's some more of this humor. I mean, the the etymologies don't really work all that well, but this business of Jacob and grabbing the heel, yeah, the grasper and pull, you know, trying to trying even coming out of the womb, leg. trying to yeah. pull his brother back and get ahead. And in English, you know, we have somebody like Jacob would be called. He's a real heel, mm. you know. <laughs> so just, well, you pulling my leg. You are you pulling? My, are you fooling me? Uh, yeah. a, a, a deceitful kind of person. Uh, so yeah, in some ways, uh, I I don't know how much we'll mention this as we go. But what's very interesting to watch is this here in 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 Jacob's life from the womb, and of course he's yeah. going to trick his brother later, et cetera, et cetera. And and Jacob does make it kind of a way of life <laughs> until yeah. he meets his match one of these days when he's. Yeah. Uh, 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 good old Laban, right? Yeah. Uncle Laban and or cousin yeah. Laban. I I get lost in the family tree. Yeah. And we talked yeah, about that matter. last week. But uh, yeah, it 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 is a subtext 
winding yep. through this Genesis and eventually has, uh, you know, sort of its issue when finally Jacob faces the man, you know, at the yep. court of the Jabbok night. And, yep. and he can't wriggle or wrestle his way out of it. And, and yeah. so, this is yeah. the beginning of this that story where it, where it yeah. comes to Jacob coming to face to face with that whole struggle within himself of trying Absolutely. to master the world. So He's literally all of that, been struggling all his life. Here we yep, are. Yep. Yep. So this is a fascinating piece, just a wonderfully told story. You know, you can just, uh, you can see a, a, a good movie made out of this if somebody <laughs> wanted to change it around. So what, a couple of interesting things, of course, it gets set up that, you know, so Esau's daddy's favorite, his he-man, he loves to hunt, and daddy says, that's my boy. <laughs> you know, you can see him, he's, a, he's in the stands at the high school football game, and Esau's busting up the middle as the fullback, just carrying people mm-hmm. with him halfway down the field, and and um, Isaac's up there cheering. Meanwhile, um, Jacob's the... the uh, with his mama. Yeah. Or he's uh, playing piccolo in the band, you know, <laughs> or something. Who knows? You know what I mean. And, and uh, it's he just has a, a quieter world. lifestyle. Quieter yes. life. And he's mama's boy. He likes to cook. He likes to do this and that. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting the way it plays it. And then there's this whole issue, what's the birthright? I mean, it, the the caricature and ridicule of Esau as someone who would give away his inheritance for a bowl of soup. Mm-hmm. Is, is it, he's, he's the god of the stomach, is what he worships there. Well, you're getting at it. He is the big, dumb jock yeah. stereotype. Right. Yep. The big, dumb jock coming in. He's the hurly burly. You know, he's, yeah, I'm hungry. I got some that soup. Give me some of that. All I need is your birthright. I don't care about the birthright. Give me something to eat. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it is a little stereotypical in, in yeah. uh, portrayal. One of the questions that's unclear is uh, exactly what does the birthright mean? Deuteronomy twenty-one seventeen talks about it as the eldest getting two-thirds of the inheritance. Double so portion. is that what happens? Does that switch mm-hmm. places? Or does it have a possibility? Is uh, you know There's this blessing down through the generations, and does that because Esau's the oldest, was it supposed to go to him? And does it shift to Jacob? Jacob's the one who ends up with the father of the 12 tribes. Is this an explanation story of how it is that Esau was oldest, and yet mm-hmm. we get the the 12 tribes and Joseph and all of that mm-hmm. coming coming through Isaac? I, I, well, yeah, no it, really it, all goes, it all goes together, and, and we're going to yeah. get, I don't remember if we read it in this cycle, but certainly in the, in the cycle in, the, in Genesis, you do get the blessing, which is also st- stolen or tricked. Yeah, uh, yeah. You, you know, Jacob's yes. mama puts him up to it, and so right. to, to remove all doubt, he gets the sort of birthright, Father brethren. and yeah. then he gets the blessing, right. and uh, all of that will, will, will come back to get him. Um, oh shoot, Delmer! I uh, I had a thought, and there it went. You know, as I started, it'll come back. Uh, started uh, waxing eloquent there, but uh, yeah, uh, it, it it is going that way. Oh, I know. And you you mentioned briefly, we just have to be honest and know that this story is written backwards. Yes, and so we had it back in verse twenty three from yeah. the Lord. 
one will be stronger than the other, and right. the elder shall serve the younger. Right. That's not the way it's supposed to happen. And so we got God saying it. We got yeah. Esau gladly selling his birthright. Later, we're going to have Jacob tricking their dad for the blessing. Yeah. So his story's trying he to continued. say, well, y'all just need to know the reasons this all worked out the way yep. it did. Yeah. So one of the questions as we proclaim this and, and say, what does this have to do with us, the church? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the questions you can ask yourself and, and, and as you proclaim it and ask your congregation to think, I think this is one that you invite the congregation to think, to ponder. What is our birthright hmm. as a people of God? Mm-hmm. Um, and what, does, are we, what have we given up our birthright for? And sometimes, uh, and we've all struggled with churches mm-hmm. that are struggling and yeah. want to survive and need. It's not most churches now aren't aren't in the category of going for lavish lifestyles and big money. We're we're looking for survival. Mm-hmm. Most of the churches I deal with, they're looking, yeah. you know, and and they're they're willing to make. And the question is, what compromises? What's the difference between compromise yeah. with the culture? And change adaptation, yeah. adaptation to attract and to bring the gospel to more people, and it's a fine line. It's hard to tell sometimes because, and the question is, what is our birthright? What do we hold on to? And what is what is disposable? What can we let go of? What? And I, I think back to the time of the Reformation, and you know, there was. The both the Reformed Church let go of a lot more than the Lutherans did historically in terms yeah. of worship mm-hmm. and other things, but they both were struggling with what is our birthright? What is the essential thing that it means to be the church? And what's adiaphora? What's matters of indifference we can let go of? Yeah. And the key is to not sell your birthright for a pot of porridge, right. for a bowl of soup. Mm. Um. You know, I, I when it said that red soup, all I can think about is some good chili. And I'll have to tell you, there's some chili I would have sold a lot of my birthright for. <laughs> I'm a, I, I love barbecue and I love chili, but you get the drift. What? Yeah. What are in in our desperation to survive? Esau felt mm-hmm. famished. We have to be careful what we're willing to give up. And I think that's a that's something food for thought for someone as we if I would preach if I were preaching on this text that's where I would be going with thinking about it from Esau we are Esau yeah if we are Esau right. what what are what we don't want to be Esau we don't want to give mm-hmm. up our birthright for this nothing. is Esau don't be Esau we want to hold I, on I, to our birthright I think it's an excellent line of inquiry I will just. Uh, Say the only uh, question I have is, did you intend that pun or not? Food for thought. Yeah, I did. Uh, Yeah. Okay, I'll take that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Sticking to it. Yeah, that's it. Psalm 119 is the infamous psalm of eight verses. That's 22 stanzas, each of eight verses each, and each verse (laughs) has eight... uh, you know, uh, synonyms for Torah. Yeah. The the connection here is verse 11, the heritage. 
you know, where it says this is my heritage, my birthright. Mm-hmm. I think one of the, the things the assurance has to do is, is has to do God's word is sure. And that's one of the things that this text explores is God's presence in the midst mm-hmm. of this struggle. And I, I'm going to, you know, as that's... it as looks back to as its connection with um, uh, the Genesis text and the mm-hmm. story of Jacob and Esau and the pot of porridge. So I'm going to let that go it. at the, at there. It's an enough. interesting song, but that's enough. Yep. Isaiah 55, 10 through 13 is from uh, the end of second Isaiah, which is 10 through 50, 40 through 55. Mm-hmm. Uh, second Isaiah was written, dur- uh, was set. Let's put it that way. It was set within the last years of the exile. Mm-hmm. Uh, 539 is where it is set, which is a year before the ending of the Babylonian uh, exile. Mm-hmm. And this is um, the promise of return. Of The promise of return is what Isaiah is getting at. It's a tone of exultation and joy. Um, the uh, first couple of verses of this, 10 and... 11 um, have to do with the connection between water and life and God's word. That is that promise that God has made that, you know, uh, as a variation on the promise of land and prosperity and down through Abraham to the Davidic kingdom, all of that. And Mm -hmm. his word is sure, his promise is sure, and his word waters our souls the same way that, you know, water... um, Water, water floods the world and fills it with life, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. And then 12 and 13 is about uh, going home. For you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. That means go out of exile and be led back to Israel back in home. peace. And it has this, this, that nature will join in with you, clapping their hands and all this. And this is an interesting kind of imagery, and I call it prickly will be replaced with comforting signs. <laughs> you know, and you've got this wonderful imagery of instead of the thorn, you're going to have the cypress. Instead of the briar will come the myrtle, and these will be for the Lord a memorial. So your way as you go, you will no longer have to worry about stepping on thorns or being... Uh, hit with briars anybody who grew up anywhere near the country or been out in the wood real woods knows that's that's a real threat you're going (laughs) to run into all of that stuff and it's basically said it's going to be smooth sailing home the lord's going to lead us on home it's going to be good we're going to get home it's a little bit of an image of a parade too yeah Uh, another way of seeing it you know and and there's this I love the theme of return. You know, the rain comes down and waters the earth. It it doesn't return until it's accomplished its purpose. Um, uh, My word goes forth and it doesn't return until it accomplishes its purpose. And now you are going to return. God's purpose is still being worked out in you. And you get this, you will go out on the way back. You'll go out and enjoy the, the peace and the mountains and uh, they're going to burst into song. The trees, good job! They're clapping their hands. It's it's this it's just a joyous image, and yeah. nature is is strong here. Yeah, and Psalm sixty five, uh, the section that is used here, connects directly to it. Nine through fourteen. Um, mm-hmm. This psalm is um, this section is about 
the the creation and it ties directly to the water you visit the earth and water it mm-hmm. and it's just the river of god's full of water and it's a it's a thanksgiving it is uh, for blessing for for as a harvest festival kind of thanksgiving psalm a communal thanksgiving psalm for mm-hmm. harvest and so that's how it ties directly in there. They shout and sing together for joy. And it has that same image in 13, 14, 12 and 13 mm-hmm. about the wilderness, the pastures and the valleys and the meadows decking themselves. The cre- all creation is yeah. glad for us. Yeah. Beautiful yeah. imagery there. And that's yeah. if thinking in terms of proclaiming it by mm-hmm. itself. Um, most of, uh, you know, post COVID post a lot of things, uh, churches are struggling. I remember I was at Southeastern Senate of the ELCA's annual, uh, assembly convention a month or so ago. I remember talking with one pastor whose, uh, ear is always firmly to the ground in terms of knowing what's going on. And he said, as far as he can tell, most churches have lost about 30%. There's 30% that a pre-COVID that were fairly active that just aren't going to be aren't coming back. Mm-hmm. They've got out of the habit. Life has changed. You know, uh, life went off the rails a little bit, and we all are feeling it. Every yep. church I know of is feeling it a bit. And so the question is, not to be ro- put on rosy glasses, but the question mm-hmm. of uh, listed mills is question. Can God be trusted? Is there hope in our future? Is it? It's not as immediate as the Isaiah text. Of course, again, it's being written backwards and post getting back right. and saying we were led. But there is that element of our hope that if we continue the work that God has called us to do, continue to proclaim and live uh, uh, an accurate life, yeah. God will be pro- will prosper will be with us yeah. and help prosper. I mean, that's an assurance that one yes. needs to find a way to proclaim and hear. The Psalms certainly, and, and consonant with other places in Scripture, but the Psalms certainly call us to patience yep. and call us to a deeper wisdom that t- sits back and, and says, well, wait a minute, what's, what's going on here? And uh, so... Yes, uh, all flesh will come to God. Uh, God is in the business of answering prayers. Things feel overwhelming, but God is with us. And then these these various descriptions, the one I giggled uh, almost looking at. Uh, and again, these are psalms are people speaking to and about God. Right. Rarely do the psalms have God giving uh, any kind of decree or speaking, and in, in verse eleven, you got all this stuff going on, and they're saying, "And you crown the year with your bounty, your wagon tracks overflow with richness." And I'm seeing God sitting on what I see is a, a covered wagon. You know, yeah. go west, young man. God just humming along, and there's the wagon tracks. And I know that's a whole lot different image than that, uh, but. They're taking things they know and they can experience and say, this, this is how we see God uh, at work. And as we follow God, the wagon tracks will overflow with richness. So here, here's a question, I think, about tying to Isaiah and this, this mm-hmm. trail, as you said, the wagon tracks coming back from exile, going to mm-hmm. the new land. And as we look, as we're coming out of whatever mm-hmm. has happened in our local mm-hmm. congregations, 
and during COVID and past and where life is. The question is, we are not going to return to the way things were before. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things as you read Isaiah and the other Ezra, Nehemiah and other things, you look at people coming out of that exile, they were not able to return to where things were before yeah. uh, as if it hadn't happened. But they, they assured themselves and they were confident that God was present with them. So what one of the things that we as a modern church in this thinking about this text and thinking mm-hmm. about their story and tying it with our story is that our hope and our assurance that God is present with us is not tied to things going back to the way they used to be. Mm-hmm. Life can be different and still be good. Mm-hmm. And life will be different. It'll never go back to being like it was. And that's probably a good thing. There were things we needed to let go of. <laughs> I agree. So uh, in proclaiming this particular text, I think one of the struggles is how do you, in 10 to 12 minutes, invite your congregation individually and as a collective to think about what they've lost and talk about what they've held on to and how that might grow anew and might grow differently. And here's uh, the image I love is thorns and briars becoming mm. cypress and myrtle. Yeah. Is nice. it possible that some of the things that were not so great in the before COVID era yeah. can be changed if we, and let we let go? And let God's ab- abundant grace water us, and we nurture what grows. Yeah. That's those are my thoughts. I think that'd work. Going in that direction. All right, moving along to Romans eight one through eleven, and we've been in Romans a while here in that same <laughs> kind of dialectic that he's been working on for several weeks, as in our view, as we look at these texts, is this. This issue, the underlying issue of, uh, as last Sunday's text had it, I, I think I plan on doing this way, but I end up doing the other way. Yeah. What am I going to do about it? And the last couple of weeks, it's been kind of a downer, you know. There's been a little, <laughs> yeah. there's been a little, uh, thing, the, the last week just sort of ended with, yeah. Oh, thanks God for our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, Thank you for. Now. Yeah. I, I bet they spent ten verses on drowning, and in the last minute, all you say, and then they threw me a life buoy and yeah. a rope, and I'm holding on. <laughs> I, when you start talking about, well, we've been in Romans for a while, and I'm, I'm going, yeah, that gumbo Paul when he got a hold of something, man, he just had to. <laughs> he wouldn't let it go. He's like a bulldog. He's I, and 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 I say to you, and and so he. Really he was the, he the was expounding. Here. He yes. was expounding. Yes, and um, so this one starts with a positive, mm-hmm. and he he does sink a little into the negativity, but overall it's a mm-hmm. positive text to proclaim here. It starts with, therefore, now no don condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think you know reading the last five six chapters five six and seven. If I'd have been an original Roman. And he got to that point, he said, well, why didn't you say that to start with? <laughs> you could have done said that, Paul. <laughs> you could have done said that. I was feeling awfully condemned <laughs> you got to this. 
Yeah. Now he he's trying to set up this this whole this yeah. whole deal that he sets two things against one another. There's the law of sin, death, flesh, or you know humanity, versus um, life in the Word, life itself, spirit, and those two. And he says the spirit wins. Uh, in the end, God wins is is his point. He goes. In his usual kind of non-linear, we think so linearly because we've been influenced that way, point A, point B, point C, we can get a little lost in what Paul's saying. He goes more circle back, circle back, circle back to the main point. And the main point is verse is that very first verse. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The rest of it is expounding various aspects of that. Right, and um, the other key in proclaiming is to once again remind ourselves that that flesh doesn't mean the what we think of as the sins of the flesh of sex or overeating and drinking mm-hmm. and all of that. It has to do with being centered on self right. rather than centered on God. Where, um, what's the the compass of your life? What it, what yeah. is it that's guiding you? Yeah, that's a. If you remove the notion of God's spirit from life, that's what you're left with, mm-hmm. and that leads to death, as he says. Yeah. There's not much else you can do about it. But thanks be to God, God mm-hmm. in Christ. And so, the other thing in here is to pay attention to the way in which he says the solution was not flesh on one side and spirit on the other, but Mm -hmm. spirit bridged the gap and became flesh. That's the importance of the incarnation. This is, you know, so often this is portrayed as, well, Jesus had to get born so God could kill somebody for the sacrifice, somebody for the sins. You know, the substitutionary atonement, I understand Mm -hmm. it, but it comes all across as what I sometimes call the abusive father theory of the atonement. God, God's mad and has to hit somebody, and the older brother steps up and gets between God and the little children, and God be- gets beats him to death, and then his wrath is over, and he can hug and love everybody. I mean, that's underneath tough. the way that's mm-hmm. done. And this is not what's going on. What's going on is we are trapped, Paul's vision is, we're trapped in this, this fleshiness, and the spirit, Spirit, God in has in Christ has to come to us. We cannot go to God. Yeah. There are various ways God has come to us in various and sundry ways, as mm-hmm. as you know that as Hebrews puts it, yeah. He's come to us, and He came to us in the Son, who became flesh, so that we could become spirit. And I, I think there's a. a, a this would be a fabulous, as as much of this Romans is, this would be a fabulous discussion. If you have time to do this in a, an education class or something, right. that, that verse 3, that point where you just were, what yeah. God has done by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh is to deal with sin and to condemn sin in the flesh, yeah. not to send him to beat somebody up, to deal with sinners, to avert this wrath that God was just poised in the sky waiting to unleash. No, there's a whole other thing going on here. 
And wow, uh, in a sermon, I, I guess you just don't have a whole lot of time other than to proclaim that. And uh, I, I heard not too long ago a pastor that I respect uh, talking about his uh, one of the things he learned in preaching class was when you get a text and you're not really sure what to say, just read a line of the text and then comment on it. And then read yeah. another line of the text and comment on it. I would say in this passage, that's not a good approach because you, mm-hmm. you'll be there all day. You will. Uh, but yeah, pick up that highlight and, and lift up. I like your turn to the positive here. Yeah. Lift up what's really going on with Jesus in the flesh and the life and work of the spirit if if i found myself needing to preach mm-hmm. on this particular text if that's where it fell i would do with verse one mostly yeah there is so, no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus that's his whole point that's his whole point and i would lift a few things out to help with that but i would stay on that point and and make that point there is no condemnation because mm-hmm. of christ that's what point Paul's after here. Oh, so, well, let's get to Jesus and his, and his beach umbrella. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's deceptively simple if you take it as it lies on the page, as they yeah. say. Mm-hmm. As it lays there on the page, it's deceptively simple. Verses 1 through 9, we have the parable. And then 18 through 23, we have a good allegorical interpretation of that parable purportedly directly from the mouth of J.C. himself. And, so, and purportedly being a key word there. Because yes. as uh, you remind us from time to time, every gospel writer has something he's trying to accomplish. There's right. some way that Matthew is trying to set things up here with Jesus. Luke has a perspective. Even Mark yeah. has a, a perspective. Yeah. Uh, and so things are set up. When you get to things like this, well, now, this is what I was meaning by the parable. You almost get the idea that goes against why you tell a parable in the first place. That's right. Place. Why would Jesus interpret his own parables? The, the parable is designed to, to make you think, to raise these yep. issues, and you go, oh, yeah, hmm. And, it, and it, by its nature, it's supposed to shock a little bit, right? It, so, I wasn't expecting yeah. that. So, yeah. So here's what's going on. Here's what I think is going on, and yeah. several uh, several real New Testament scholars, not, you know, I'm not a real New Testament <laughs> scholar. I just play one on the Internet. <laughs> I know so, how to read one when I need help. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, this is uh, three, the first of three Sundays in a row in Chapter 13, so it would do mm-hmm. well to break out uh, the Matthew and the Bible, mm-hmm. not just your printed text wherever you get it from, and, and look the whole context of Matthew up to this point and realize this is the third of the five teaching sections in Matthew. The first one is the Sermon on the Mount. The second one is the Sermon on Mission. And this is the third third one, as you alluded to, the Sermon on the Beach, <laughs> you know. And uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount is full of uh, high ethical standards. Uh, the Sermon on Mission is about the call to to go and to leave things behind and do you know the uh what to do and how to do that and being on this mission and take up your cross and go proclaim so this fits within that so here he is on on the boat and everybody's on the beach and he tells the sower story one through nine and then the lectionary leaves out what i consider very important points 
So you got one through nine, you got the story of the sower, and it's pretty simple. He goes out and he sows, and it falls on various places, and bad things happen. Mm -hmm. What you need to know here is that this is just a direct description of the way agriculture was done in Palestine at the time. You went out, you had a field, and you just threw the... Let her rip. Let her rip, and then you plowed it in. And literally, at the end... You've, you've, the, the harvest was different depending on the soil mm-hmm. and what was there. You know, so things did get choked out. Things did fall on rocky ground because they didn't have the technology to get rid of the rocks in the middle of the fields as well. I grew up in a part of the world, we, you know, that was rocky, and we had places we just plowed around and didn't plant. Mm-hmm. We pulled up stumps. We plowed around those. I mean, this makes sense in some ways, only we did it different. You know, you plowed, then you planted. Right. But they pl- they planted, and then they plowed, and then when it came up, you found out what it was going to do. So that's accurate. And the good soil. And so one of the things you end up doing is you, you do that, and then if we skip this middle section, then you have Jesus doing the interpretation, and the message is, Lord, let me be good soil. I want to work in the good soil. I want to be good soil. I want to be one that I want to get rid of all the thorns and briars in my life. And I don't want to be rocky and I don't want to be beaten down. I want to be good soil. You know, the allegory breaks down eventually and the point gets missed because we're sitting around worrying about are we good soil and what are we doing to get in the way of God's word. What's actually going on here is he tells the sower story, and then 10 through 15, he talks to the crowd about, why do I talk in parables? This was not what he would have been saying after telling a parable. This is a teaching to the disciples. Why Why do we talk in parables? And it's because of, you know, the difficulty of, of directly saying this, that, and then I use parables. And then 16 and 17, there's this word to the disciples talking about how blessed they are that God has revealed it to them. You have had the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And remember, these are the people that just before this, he's told to go out on mission. So this interpretation is then put there. So what? it's not Jesus given this interpretation what has happened is the early church is struggling with they've been out proclaiming and the return has not been as great as they might have hoped (laughs) you know you have these stories in acts that luke's telling about Mm -hmm. they went out and preached and three thousand people were you know and everything Mm -hmm. you know you got this refrain of they preached and then everybody grew well that didn't happen everywhere (laughs) that's for sure And Matthew's early church community, the more Jewish-oriented community, was wondering, why why are we having so much trouble getting people to listen? Mm -hmm. And this is an understanding of the parable, probably told by Jesus, that has become current within the community as they struggle to understand success and failure. And what Mm -hmm. they take Jesus' parable, remember that what he said to the disciples about ears to hear and eyes to see and blessed you are that you know this mm-hmm. and this is to the church as it's struggling to proclaim the word to say look your job is sowing 
you can't decide who the good soil is. Mm-hmm. You can't decide ahead of time who's going to be receptive. You can't plan who will hear. No more than a sower can plan where the rocky soil is, where the briars will grow up, right. who the good soil You just spread, and then you'll see when people are responsive, that's where the good soil is. That's point. That's what we need to hear. Mm-hmm. That was to that church then, and it's to us now, that we are sowers, and too much concern about figuring out how to make the highest reception um, you know, we importing American sales techniques to the mm. proclamation of the gospel is a dangerous thing because when you begin worrying too much about closing the sale, you begin to abridge the message to fit the people you're trying mm. to persuade. Mm. Now, that's not to say you don't try to make it where people can hear. Yeah. But the problem is when you tr- go remove the part that you think they'll find offensive and emphasize the part they'll like, mm-hmm. you end up with a yeah. message that says, you know, you, you accept Jesus and everything in your life will be fine. Mm-hmm. Rather than anyone who would come after me, let him take up his cross. Yeah. Those who lose their life will gain it. Those who, you know. Yeah. save their life, we'll lose it. Yeah. We leave out the hard part because we're trying to turn everybody into good soil. We're looking for the return on investment. And, uh, yeah. Baba, I, I don't know, you've probably had this situation or something similar to it. Some of you other pastors, I was working with somebody a couple of weeks ago with a medical condition. It's desperate. They, you yeah. know, most of the standard treatments, uh, you know, just aren't doing anything. And... They were hopeful of being admitted to a clinical trial, which sounds yeah. really good. You know, to, you stop and think about that and you go, some of y'all are going to get the medicine, some of you aren't. That's why it's a trial. And um, we're told by their doctor, you know, I'm sorry, your readings are just so low, I, I can't accept you into the trial. Yeah. And they were just trying to rent. They're going, well, I, I thought they were trying to help people. You know, I, I need the, the help. I, my condition is not going to get better if I don't get this help. And it was really difficult to, to help them see, yeah. no, they're not here to help people. Mm. A pharmaceutical company is paying lots and lots of money to back this trial. And yeah. they really would rather have people th- that have a higher likelihood of success in the right. trial than people who are just sick yeah and i think that's what you're getting at with saying we need to be careful i i i see jesus also tells the parable of the man who did started building a tower and didn't count right. the cost you know we we do have to do that but we can't be so concerned about the allocation of resources and return on investment and some of these kinds of things that we ever cease being sowers who say you know, I understand who I'm more likely to reach, but this gospel is for everybody. It's for well, everyone. And the other thing is that all of us are at one time or another in rocky places and have briars and thorns choking life out of us. 
we're all not, uh, and only occasionally are we good soil, and that uh, goes for who the people we proclaim to every Sunday. Yeah, yeah. People are not always in a good place to hear. Absolutely not. And we just keep proclaiming. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm reminded of, uh, uh, and I want to end with a with a Luther pill, Martin Luther's line of. That, uh, yeah, I proclaim the word on Sunday morning, and then I go home and drink a big stein of good Wittenberg beer and take a nap and let the Holy Spirit do its work. (laughs) Well, whatever our version of that is, we need to find a way to proclaim the word as honestly and truly as we can, and that's the assurance in Matthew, Mm -hmm. and trust the Holy Spirit to do its work. That's it. The sower went out to sow. And that's the main thing we need to get in our heads first. The sower went out to sow. Uh, Let's do that. Now, as you say, things are going to happen. Stuff's going to happen. Everybody's going to listen. And we we do kind of have to wrap our heads around that. But that's no reason to say, well, we're just not going to fool with sowing anymore. Uh, Birds are going to eat it up and this and that and the other. (laughs) Good stuff, Bubba. All right. Hey, listen, everybody, you should have gotten an email this week if you're a subscriber to the Lectionary Lab podcast with the updated link and registration information on our September upcoming event, the Lectionary Lab uh, Preaching Workshop Preparing for Advent uh, Year B will be September 26th to the 28th. Uh, on retreat in Tallapoosa, Georgia, Luther Ranch. Ranch. <laughs> I have to get the right Luther. Um, so check the details. If you didn't see it in your email, you can just go to lectionarylab.com. Lectionarylab.com. And we've got it uh, posted there at the top of that, and you can get the details. I hope you'll give it a real consideration. Come and be with us. First time in three or four years we've been able to get together face-to-face. We are looking forward to it. Bubba, I've enjoyed it today. Good work. I don't think there's much left for us to do, though, other than to tell everybody bye. Everybody bye. Lectionary Lab Live is a Two Bubbles and a Bible production. Our opening theme is Next Steps, performed by Half.Cool. We go out today with the theme from Twin Peaks, composed and performed by Angelo Badalamenti. Mm-hmm.